You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and this is going to be a fun one. On the surface, today's podcast is the startup story of Speed3D, a company that has developed an ultra-fast metal 3D printing process that uses modified rocket engines to form hypersonic jets of metal, carrying enough kinetic energy to fuse into solid parts on impact. But while the story of Speed3D is interesting enough on its own, there is even more richness in the history of its founding team of Byron Kennedy and Stephen Camilleri. The pair were first introduced some 25 years ago when they were both part of the World Solar Challenge, a grueling engineering competition in which university teams from across the world design and race fully solar-powered vehicles across 3,000 kilometres of the harsh Australian outback between Darwin and Adelaide. The trials and tribulations of this competition had a habit of forming lasting friendships, and for Stephen and Byron, it was the foundation of a shared career journey that has included academic research, the formation of two startup companies, a successful exit, and most recently, has seen the pair aboard US Navy vessels, demonstrating Speed3D's ability to build components while sailing on the high seas. Dr. Stephen Camilleri, welcome to Lab Notes. Hi, Leo. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you very much. So towards the end of this interview, I think we'll talk about Speed3D at length, but I wanted to start with a bit of a sneak peek. What's what's the elevator pitch of your company and your role there? Right. So um, Speed3D are technology developers. We have focused on this very interesting way to make metal 3D printed parts. So we, we use this process called cold spray, which is very unusual um, in additive manufacturing. And... Uh, it means we can shoot a powdered material together at several times the speed of sound, um, actually with a rocket engine. And we deposit the material that way. It bonds together just with the kinetic energy. So not having to melt and solidify in between each layer means we can print much, much faster. Um, that's really our core technology. There's a whole range of things that come along with that. So yeah, my background, I'm the CTO and co-founder and I've come from electric vehicles, interestingly. so. My past and my other co-founders, um, Byron Kennedy, his past, is uh, developing high-efficiency brushless electric motors. So there's a bit of a story getting from there to here, but it does actually make sense. Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating story from what I've read in my research, and I'll try and cover as much of it as we can in our hour here today. I wanted to start right the way back when you moved to Darwin as only a one or two year old. You started school there, but perhaps didn't fit into the regular model of schooling. And I've read in other places that you've kind of really hit your stride when you got accepted into a gifted and talented program at around 10 years old. Can you talk us through that that part of your life and, and what being in those environments meant for you? Yeah, so I am not one of those people that naturally does well with school. Um, there are a few of us out there, uh, and I think the, those people listening will know who they are. Some of us are quite happy to go in and listen to others speak for hours and write on a whiteboard or a blackboard and can pick up knowledge that way and, you know, can read a book cover to cover and pick up knowledge that way. I'm not one of those people. 
So my skills really are, are different. I pick up by doing, I pick up by talking and working with people. I'm getting much, much better at the, at the reading papers and reading textbooks a bit, but I've learned to do it in fits and starts. The whole educational process, at least the first part of it for me, really was going the wrong way. I wasn't interacting with it well. And yet it all turned around when I was, um, you know, I'd, I'd been doing well on, on the various proficiency tests and eventually there became an option to join what was called a gifted unit. I think we're not allowed to call it that anymore, but at the time it was called a gifted unit. And uh, I was around a whole bunch of other kids just like me with all varying degrees of spectrum and um, got along famously with them. And we did a range of projects together at a very young age, did a lot of very interesting things. And uh, the, the friends I have from that time, I still have. So, yeah, I guess you, you talk about getting along with these other kids who, who may be on the spectrum. And I think that brings to mind in people this vision of someone who's you know in the corner with their head stuck in a textbook. But that doesn't sound like it was you. You're much more about the hands-on experience and the, the project-based learning. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the people that are in the corner with their head in a book, I get along with very well. And I think they generally get along with me very well. But we do have different personality types and different ways that we pick up our information. Um, I mean, if the book is absolutely phenomenal, I can, I can be glued to a book, but it's extra effort for me. So there's probably some sort of dyslexia spectrum thing going on. But um, I've certainly met other people who are in exactly the same boat. So um, I'm, I'm just considering this a difference, really. But uh, yeah, learning by doing, learning by working with good people, you know, exposure to good people is very important for me. And I'm sure for my other compatriots in the same boat, uh, that's very, very important. And I was very lucky to have some fantastic mentors growing up. And I think that that's made all the difference as well. So with his unique learning style now identified and supported, Stephen began to flourish. And he flourished in a few subjects in particular. One was electronics. And at the age of just 11, Stephen scored a perfect 100% in the year 12 electronics examinations, besting students that were five or six years older than he was, earning him an invitation to Government House to accept an award that is intended for high school graduates, rather than those whose high school journeys have only just begun. For my next question in this interview, I asked Stephen where his passion and his exceptional talents for electronics had come from. Yeah, again, it was it was really um, a lot of this was just dumb luck. So it was it was always a subject that I'd been very interested in. Uh, so you know, my, my parents used to say I was one of those horrible horrible kids that used to take everything apart. Um, but they worked out I was a bit different when I started putting it back together again and making it work, um, which they thought was pretty unusual. So uh, electronics, um, you know, radio communications, magnetics. These all held a very special interest for me um, as a youngster, and uh, they still do in reality. Uh, the opportunity came up through this gifted unit to go to the local high school and do an electronics course. And uh, you know, I could not think of anything I'd rather do than that at the time. It was a wonderful benefit to be able to do that. And uh, you know, the teacher at that time, his name was Mark, was a wonderful mentor to me. And uh, I, I just, I just found the whole experience incredibly satisfying. And I was with some other children uh, doing the same sort of thing. We all had a great time. And the fact that we were learning and achieving was irrelevant, really. I think it's, it's a shame that we don't 
focus on trying to give more of those kind of opportunities to young kids, especially kids who are having trouble engaging with their education because uh, for me it made all the difference. Yeah. What sort of projects were you working on? Is this like a ham radio type situation? Uh, yeah, that was in there. So when I was young, Dick Smith was very popular. So I was lucky enough to meet Dick Smith as an adult. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. And he had developed these things called Fun Way into Electronics. There was a Series 1 and a Series 2 and a Series 3. And he obviously put a lot of work into that. And uh, it was very carefully progressed, you know, project-based and uh, I'm surprised that it hasn't endured to this day because it is a fantastic way to be learning electronics. Um, so Dick Smith, if you're listening, the world needs it. I'd get back into it. Yeah, those project kits are really cool. My dad was an electrical engineer and I know we had a few of those kits around as kids. But let's move this story ahead. Now, obviously, you did very well at school and you did go to university to what is now Charles Darwin University and picked up an electrical engineering degree. But it seems like a similar dynamic ensued, which is to say that you weren't such a fan of your regular face-to-face lectures, but you fell into the project-based learning space once again. And in particular, with the, the World Solar Car Challenge, this race across Australia. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's right. Um, it was. It, I have to say, university fit me a little better than high school did, but I, I was evidently having to put a lot more effort in than the other, you know, my other students' friends were. So this is where I met my favourite mentor, Professor Dean Patterson, who was running our solar car team here at the time, the Desert Rose solar car team. So that solar car had already done amazing things and I was able to be part, a team member and continue doing amazing things with it. So he was a very inspirational guy. I mean, he's still around and he's a wonderful person, uh, retired now. And uh, one of these people who's, I guess, a little like me, a bit of a generalist, a little bit unhappy being pigeonholed into one thing. So he has a range of different skills and experiences that are all quite different and he achieves them at a very high level. And uh, I just found that whole that whole scenario very appealing. And the project-based stuff, uh, like I said, it just, it just fits me perfectly. The idea of uh, being challenged very strongly, not these small challenges, all right, everyone in the class has got to be able to achieve this type of, type of stuff. I want the kind of challenges that, that there's a 50-50 chance it's achievable. That's where I like to be, and I still like to be there. And the uh, the engagement with the solar car was about there. So we, it was all about going fast and using little energy. And uh, the the solar car work, <clears throat> it's about as challenging as engineering projects get because you're out in the Australian desert. you got insects and sun and rain and team logistics and all that stuff to worry about. You've got to do 3,000 kilometres with this thing. Reliability is everything, and yet you're pushing to the limit. So... Yeah, anyone who's listening who's interested in getting into an engineering project, highly recommend the World Solar Challenge uh, Darwin to Adelaide. Um, I think it makes a lot of engineers that race. Yeah, that race sounds like an incredible experience, Stephen, and I know it's affected your career in a number of ways, so I'll try and unpick that over the course of this interview. One thing I want to dive a little deeper into right now is your relationship with Dean Patterson. You've mentioned him, and obviously he's been a huge influence on you, can you just give us a bit more understanding, a bit more colour about your relationship with Dean and how that formed and developed? Yeah, so Dean was one of my lecturers at university. Uh, I think he was actually the dean of the faculty at the time, so he was Dean Dean, which was a little confusing. But, uh, you know, evidently a very wide interest in things. I had a strong interest in communications, radio communications and mathematics associated, and that's Dean's original field. So we hit it off there. His lectures were just amazing. 
stand out really amongst everything that I studied. The classes weren't big here uh, you know, up in Darwin. So you get to know the lecturer. It's not like a, an impersonal 300-person class. Um, you actually get to know people. And if you get along, then, you know, you get along. And um, Dean was involved in a whole range of things, but the solar car was the thing that took my, my interest the most. I, I do actually vaguely remember still applying for a scholarship to study interstate and uh, having a little uh, internal debate with myself about whether I'd rather stay in Darwin and work on the solar car. And indeed, that's what I did. And uh, Dean was really the focus of that. So having very inspirational and very talented people to work with um, is just a hugely important part, I think, of a professional development and personal development, indeed their personal development as well. So Dean actually said to me once, I said, what, what's the secret to being a good teacher? What's the secret to teaching well? Because, you know, he's a very good teacher. And he said to me, look, it's pretty simple. You've just got to get the kids around good people. Just get them around good people and it'll all work. So I've tried to be a good person like that whenever I've been called upon to do teaching or, you know, lecturing or trying to be inspirational or whatever the, the case may be. So, yeah, all of that's from Dean. I, I suspect if I hadn't met Dean, I wouldn't at all be able to talk to a crowd, for example. But Dean, Dean's made me, he's taught me some of the tricks that he uses and I still use them. Yeah, f fantastic, Stephen. Thank you for that. And I guess in addition to that, one-on-one -on -one mentor mentee relationship you also had the team dynamics around the solar car challenge can, can you tell us through that and how you kind of formed these functional teams and ultimately a very successful one with the desert rose holding the world record in the year 2000 yeah the the, the way the solar cars work does tend to divide it into you know spheres of different effort so most teams divide their car engineering effort up by mechanical and electrical Mechanical is all about getting down the road, making sure your suspension is lightweight but doesn't bend, making sure the shell of your car contains everything and is robust but is minimally aerodynamically you know, impediment, keeping the cross-sectional area of the car low and somehow in all this fitting a giant solar panel that's exposed to the sun in the correct angle. So that's the mechanical team's job and I think most, most teams work this way. The electrical team, it's all about the battery. It's a huge part of the race is the battery. There's always opportunities to employ some new exotic battery technology. Maybe it's going to catch fire. Maybe it's not well tested yet. Maybe the manufacturer hasn't made many of these cells yet, but the numbers are so good. You just you can just taste what it's going to do for you. So that's, that's a place that you always push. Uh, the solar cells is another place you always push. I mean, the solar cells are all discretized. They're all these little tiny components, and you've got to make them work as a giant hole and give you the maximum output. It's quite a challenging effort. And uh, off the back of that, you've got electromechanical components like the, the drive system for the car. And uh, I mean, having good people in all of those places is one thing, but having those people get along and be able to sit down in a meeting and trade off between, you know, one person's gonna win, one team's gonna, part of the team's gonna win, one part of the team's gonna lose because it makes the car faster. And having people understand that and get on, get on with their work and, and appreciate the other part of the team for what they do. I think Nadine was very much the glue that held those two sides of the team together. So really, I mean, leadership is a, another big part of it. And you can, you can tell a solo car team, it doesn't have good leadership. So I suspect, again, we were pretty lucky. Um, the opportunity to do the, the world record run came up 
during the course of a race we were doing and we were fighting fit we had just put in for the for the previous race the year before our first ever lithium ion battery which was a big deal so we published a paper in fact on how we did that and it's very similar to what tesla now use and uh you know that battery really helped us combined with all the other effort we'd gone to to make the car very rugged and robust it just meant we could sit on a high speed for a long time and uh and we got the world record so that was phenomenal yeah amazing Stephen. congratulations on holding a world record not many people get to say that um Look, we've talked about teamwork a little bit and, and this competition. I wanted to pull out one particular person that you met through this challenge, which was Byron Kennedy. If I've got my timings right, he was firstly a competitor, actually, with the SunSwift team from UNSW, but he ended up moving across to Darwin and joining your team and has since been you know, a major influence on your career, is, is probably understating it. Could you talk us through how you met Byron and how that relationship started to develop? So Byron Kennedy, uh, I'd done one race with, uh, or against, I should say. He was he had started the University of New South Wales solar car team. At the time, they'd bought uh, a used solar car from a very high-performance team in Melbourne called um, Aurora. And there were some reliability issues with it, and uh, they, they plagued them in that race. But um, Byron's leadership was able to get the car on the road, keep it on the road most of the time. And, uh, and get through their very first ever race. So, you know, that was quite amazing. And uh, my only remember memory from that time was overtaking their car at about 120 <laughs> and, and just seeing it disappear into the distance. I remember wanting to have a bit of a better look at it, but it just flashed by. So, you know, Byron doesn't like me reminding him of that moment, but it all started with friendly camaraderie. And when he came to join the team I was working at, at um, Northern Territory University at the time, we were both freshly graduated engineers asked to work in applications on electric motors. And uh, a couple of years went by and uh, we'd found some fantastic applications and the technology was working extremely well. We'd successfully done a range of things that were asked of us, like miniaturizing it and uh, you know, trying to cost reduce it. And uh, you know, it all it all kind of unraveled very suddenly. So Dean got the opportunity to go to the US and uh, and do some some professoring over there and uh, at, at the time the university wasn't especially interested in pursuing the technology further so we decided that we would commercialize it kind of terrifying for a couple of really academic people to try and commercialize something I absolutely don't regret going ahead with it but um, it was a pretty it was a pretty stressful period I have to say yeah well I mean that that journey from research idea to company is at the heart of what the Lab Notes podcast is about, and I'd love to dig into your story a little further. Can you tell us what the process and journey was like for you making that jump? What were the negotiations like around your intellectual property, around licensing? How did you actually make this transition happen? So um, it was pretty awkward at the time. So the situation's improved since then. I mean, this was, you know, 20 odd years ago. Um, at the time, I think there was a there was a vice chancellor's manual that had some pretty grey and kind of unclear statements around how intellectual property should be treated by people that wanted to commercialise it. So it was it was a poorly understood issue in the sector at the time, and certainly we suffered from that. Um, so there was a bit of negotiation, um, went on for a, a few months, 
And at the end of that, the university agreed to take a position in the company in exchange for assigning the, their IP rights to us to commercialize. And uh, from then on, everything was quite simple, actually. But um, yeah, it was a very awkward phase. Um, you, you really feel like you're trailblazing in these moments when you're having meetings with people and people are trying to take a, a very definitive and confident position, but they're really not sure if they should be. And that kind of happens all around the table. So um, my advice to anyone else who's trying to do the same thing is look, take a collaborative approach. Um, if you're talking about taking some IP out of a university, be very clear that with them about what it is that you're trying to do. And uh, I think on the other side, the university universities do need to understand that the idea phase um, of a new technology often isn't that valuable. So um, there's a lot of work to do to go between having a really good idea or a technology that works and uh, having a business that's you know successfully marketing that technology and uh, years of work and uh, huge amounts of effort and blood and sweat and tears and sacrifice. And the university generally won't be participating in that. So my advice to the universities is to, um, to please be generous with the researchers who are looking to work with them and uh, understand that they have a lot of pain ahead of them um, in exchange for, uh, you know, developing commercial focus around the technology that you should reasonably own a part of. That is very well spoken, Stephen. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of nuggets of wisdom in there. And I, I like the vision that you gave of you know, a bunch of people trying to form confident opinions about a very nebulous and uh, un unconfident issue. So thanks for yeah. that. Yeah, I um, mean, in, in a different time, it would have been comedy. <laughs> Look, before we move on, let's give our audience a bit of detail about what this technology is. Can you describe the axial flux motor and, and what its you know, purpose and applications are? Yeah, sure. So it's been a long time since I've had to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, most of the world's electric motors, even still today, are um, made with a technology that's coming on to 100 plus years old, um, the induction motor. And induction motors are great. They're nice and simple. You can plug them straight into the mains, uh, you know, asterisk, given a few things, and they'll just work. And they'll be very reliable for a long period of time. Uh, they're, they're very large for what they might otherwise do. And they're not actually that efficient. Again, asterisk, depending on various factors. But um, brushless motors, you know, motors that use permanent magnets, um, but are otherwise like DC motors, have been emerging for some time. And uh, they generally require electronics to go. So most people will have heard of maybe an inverter drive for their air conditioner or indeed for an electric vehicle or what have you. Uh, you know, a block of electronics that chops up the, the current and, and into a way that the motor can use it most efficiently. And uh, it was a bit of a new field when we got into it. And uh, really, the, there was nothing terribly special about the inverters we were building, but the, that's the electronic part of it. But the motor part of it was quite unusual. So most motors, you can imagine, are like a, a, big, a big drum, so a drum shape, like a 44-gallon drum, with another smaller drum inside of it. And the smaller drum inside of it rotates, and the outside drum stays still. And that's how most motors are configured. And the magnetic flux links, uh, you know, from the outside to the inside of that drum. Um, our motor was quite different. So our motor was like two pancakes stacked one top of the other. Uh, so one of those pancakes would stay still and, you know, connect to the wiring. And the other pancake had magnets on its surface and it would rotate around. 
And uh, because of that configuration, we saved a huge amount of mass. So there's, there's dead mass, there's dead volume inside motors that um, aren't configured that way. Uh, so really the motors that we all use. There are some engineering complications in having to, to build that way. For example, there's a, there's a bearing in the middle of the, the motor that, um, that now has to support everything from the center. Um, whereas you get this lovely stable support at each end with a conventional drum style motor. So uh, it turned out that was a pretty good way, the axial flux motor, the pancake motor was a very good way to make a in wheel motor. So we did that for the solar car. It turns out further that that saving in weight and that saving in size uh, and that configuration made a fairly cheap motor that was also very, very high efficiency. So that was the direction we went in was about improving drive systems uh, by using this motor technology. And, uh, you know, indeed it found its way into a lot of applications. The one that I guess I'm the most proud of was a swimming pool pump motor. So, you know, we, uh, we managed to reduce the energy consumption of a swimming pool pump motor by about 80% without really changing how it cleaned the pool. And as a result of that, you know, every motor that was made saved about a ton of carbon a year. So that, that'd been game made for about, well, oh, let's see, close on 15 years now. So that's, that's, you know, it's a sad brag to be the master of swimming pool pump motors, but uh, that idea of saving a ton of carbon per year per motor really appeals to me. I don't think you have to call that a sad brag, Stephen. That's a fantastic outcome for yourself and for the planet. I guess, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through the full in-motion technologies journey. And we should say, because I don't think we've covered it, in-motion technologies is the name of the company you formed to do this. Yeah. In, in order to give a, our audience, I guess, a sense of that journey, I'd like to just have two stories, if I can. One, you're certainly free to pick kind of anywhere along the the process journey of creating this company and running it, if you've got something from there that you could talk about. And the second is the buyout. But, but first, can we talk about, I guess, your experience going from university research environment to, to company founder? What's something that stands out to you as, as you know, an experience that sticks with you? Well, there are so many, to be honest. I think that um, if we really wanted to prepare people for the world well with our education system, uh, we'd be teaching them a little more about processes like commercialization. You know, some of the basics of how funds work, you know, how companies pay each other, how taxation works. I mean, it's boring, boring stuff. But um, it's amazing how little of that you can be exposed to and end up in that position. And certainly you do need that knowledge. You know, the intellectual property system, how patents work, what is intellectual property and what's not. I mean, some of these very basic questions we just don't answer typically with, our, with the way that we standardize our education. So I think there's, there's some very interesting opportunities for academic institutions to work with people like Byron and I and others to come up with more you know, innovation and commercialization focused kind of routes for their students, um, which I'm certainly open to. And I'm sure most other people like me would be as well. But yeah, the thing that really stands out among all that was starting this company and uh, starting to hire people and starting to do contracts and just feeling completely at sea about it all. So the, the technology part of it absolutely got that nailed, no question, knowing exactly how it has to work. But Byron and I both just having so little exposure previously, uh, you know, how do you employ someone? What's an employee con employment contract look like? What are your obligations to your employee? We just had no idea about any of these things. Um, we had a lot of good mentors again, but um, I can just remember those early moments of just feeling completely at sea, feeling like the world was just too complicated 
And, uh, you know, why couldn't it be as simple as writing a paper? Yeah, I agree that that mentor position is so valuable there. Again, I'm glad to hear that you had some good ones um, to help you through that journey. I think a lot of angel investors try to fill those roles. And did you apply for investment? Were you venture capital funded at any stage or? We did. So at the time, there was a method that had been published by the government for how a university startup company uh, or, you know, a research organisation could commercialise their technology using their researchers. And it was called uh, Comet, Commercialization of Emerging Technology. It hasn't been around for some time, as I understand. And essentially, they would co-fund the development of market research reports and business plans. And uh, everything was geared towards pitching for venture capital. So it was, I, I believe, based on the US model. And what nobody particularly realised was that even though there were a lot of people talking about venture capital in Australia, there really wasn't any. So, you know, it took us a couple of years to work that out and, uh, and, and start funding our business in other ways. Uh, that's changing now. I mean, I, I hear more and more stories now of people getting venture capital in Australia for their tech startups. So I think that's improving. But at, certainly at the time, as naive university researchers, we had no idea, had no idea at all that um, this government program was steering us towards something that didn't exist. Yeah, you know, that, that seems to be one of the hardest challenges of developing this kind of commercialization ecosystem is that you need all of the parts to grow together. And if one gets ahead of the others, it can lead to situations just like yours where you're pushed into a system that doesn't necessarily have the pull to receive you. But you did find a successful alternative to venture capital. And I wanted to talk about that as a final question on InMotion Technologies. You were ultimately bought out by a company called Regal Belloit. Can you talk us through your experience in negotiating that trade sale and I guess the transition from startup founder to an employee inside that, that purchasing company? All right. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been asked this question. So it is a good question. So we came to this realisation, you know, after having made several different platforms of electric motor drive for different organisations, you know, our business model had told us that we needed to develop the technology and then license it out and receive royalties uh, because, you know, that's how the world works. And it turns out nobody wanted to do that. So we did a bit of that. And uh, I'm not sure we actually ever received a royalty payment the entire time the company was was going. Uh, and indeed, if I were to look at that now on a spreadsheet, it's the kind of model I'd be dismissing. But nevertheless, that was the way we were directed. And we didn't know better. We developed these platforms. They were doing well. Everybody loved them. But the royalties were too far away. So how do you fund the business? What we really thought was we probably needed to manufacture the motors, get a much more direct income stream. So we looked at that and worked out that we needed capital. You know, started reading about what this capital thing meant and uh, were quite naive at the time, really. And uh, it worked out that we weren't going to get the kind of capital that we needed to be able to do that. But there were other companies that existed that did have that capital and they were called manufacturing companies, uh, you know, motor manufacturing companies often. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, all this stuff seems very obvious. But we thought, wow, let's go and find a motor manufacturing company who might make our motors in partnership with us. And we pretty quickly worked out that very large organisations don't partner with very small organisations. If they think there's commercial interest, they just purchase them. We worked out that was the way of the world. So we went shopping for the right company to partner with and indeed to buy us out. And, uh, yeah, we found uh, these guys. So they had a 
business in Australia called Fasco, um, which I, I believe the brand's still around. It was an Australian company originally, a long time ago, maybe 70 or 80 years ago now. And there were Australian engineers and Australian manufacturing. And so we thought, great, let's partner with them. They bought us out and we went to work for them. They said, well, we're not really sure how to teach our manufacturing people how to make your tech, but we think we can teach you manufacturing. So that was our next stage in life was learning to be professional manufacturing engineers. And look, this, this is a long journey that we're going to condense down a lot. You were there, I think, for about seven or eight years with Regal Belloy. Yep. But ultimately, the corporate environment got you down <laughs> and, and, and you and your co-founder wanted to start anew again. Is that too, Kurt, a summary of, of the experience? You know, you must have had some times where you were successfully delivering alongside Regal. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were successfully delivering the entire time. The frustration came from their rate of ability to process our output. So, you know, we would we would develop a platform and uh, it would take them much, much longer to commercialise it, to get it into production than, we, than our time to develop it. So, uh, you know, you develop a few of those and then you develop a few more and people are still working on the first one. And you say, wow, you know, maybe I'm not in the right place. So we'd been doing all of this prototyping work. We were getting very, very good at prototyping. And we discovered that... Uh, Metal casting, which is a very dominant way of making metal parts in, in the motor industry, uh, just seemed to have problems. So it didn't matter which country we were working in, didn't matter who we were talking to, we were constantly having these dramas with um, you know, lead time and efficiency and cost and quality with metal casting. And it, it turns out, in hindsight, that metal casting works fantastically well if you've got a very streamlined, very regular process. So, you know, I imagine Toyota would be very good at making engine blocks, just one after another and after another, with a huge team looking after them. But metal casting in campaigns, as the motor industry likes to do, um, is just is just nightmarish. Huge amounts of labour, huge amounts of risk, and uh, a lot can go wrong. So whenever we bought a metal 3D printed part from a vendor as a prototype, it would come in two weeks. It would cost us 25 grand, but it would come in two weeks and it would be right. So... We just, this thought just kept growing with us. You know, 3D printing is evidently coming. Why is nobody trying to connect the kind of stuff people need with this new way of making things, this new 3D printing way? And so those thoughts kind of grew. And um, yeah, we ended up founding, leave, leaving and founding Speed 3D. Uh, we knew exactly what we needed to do, which is a very, very uh, convenient luxury for a startup company to have, to know exactly what it is that you need to achieve, but we did um, because it was our second time around, I guess. And we needed to figure out a way to make metal parts, the kind that industries needed uh, very rapidly, much more rapidly than other 3D printing processes and indeed much more cheaply as well. And we were quite willing and ready to trade off against other features of 3D printing like resolution to achieve that because we knew that the market didn't need it. So we had a technology shaped hole Fortunately, we were very good at filling those. So it took us about a year to find the solution with this cold spray technique. We haven't looked back since then. So yeah, Stephen, as it happens, I have a bit of experience with metal 3D printing, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the landscape both before and after Speed 3D. So can you tell us a bit about what the incumbent metal printing technologies were, the ones that you were using to get custom parts printed when you were still working for Regal Beloit? Yeah, so I guess most people make the assumption by default that when you're talking about metal 3D printing, you're talking about a particular process. But in fact, it's a category 
of processes. So there's all sorts of different ways and means. Analogy might be, you know, uh, it's a bread maker, but um, you want to make bread, but what kind of bread is it? Uh, you know, what's important about the bread? Is it big bread? Is it small bread? So the, the machinery that you might use for making bread, you can imagine there's all sorts of varieties and uh, it's the right tool for the right job is the important characteristic. Metal 3D printing is really no different. So it's all about making metal parts of particular materials with particular properties and particular specifications. And there's a wide variety of techniques for doing that. So the one we were using was called laser powder bed fusion. So that's been around for maybe 25 years. It's a fairly detailed and slow process. There are people using it commercially, but not in huge volume because as the problem we had had the cost and the time. But if you want to make very small parts of it with very high detail, for example, a dental crown, like it's a fantastic process. But um, I mean, if you're trying to make a, a you know replacement drive sprocket for a tank or something like that, you'd be there for a month doing that. And uh, it would be fantastically detailed. You know, you could you could inscribe your name in small characters all over it, but you know, nobody needs that. Nobody wants that. They want that part fast and they want the material to have good properties. So laser powder bed fusion isn't the, isn't the right fit for that particular job. It's not the right tool. So we needed to come up with a tool that was right for that more standard kind of application, not dental crowns, but mechanical parts that people actually use and need and are pretty standard. And uh, so our technique, rather than using heat, we use the kinetic energy of uh, firing this powder together at high speed. That means we don't change the phase of the material. We're not melting it, we're not solidifying it. And because of that, it's very, very fast. So when we first started, we were pretty convinced that um, our objectives were infeasible. Uh, there was a period of time when we thought that quite sincerely because we determined that the thermal processes that are common in a lot of 3D printing techniques uh, just uh, you'd look at the underlying physics and you, you would observe they can't build parts fast enough. It just can't be done. And uh, we found that very um, disheartening at the time. So the aha moment was discovering that um, there were techniques for solid state forming the material that didn't require it to melt. And, uh, and that solved the speed problem. And the, the, the slow point there, just to, to, I guess, pick that apart, you're saying the thermal properties, that, that is the time it takes to transition from a, you know, a solid to a melt and back again as part of this process. Yeah, exactly right. So to, to change from a, a solid to a liquid, so melting the material takes time and temperature, and to change it back takes time and temperature again. So you've got to pump all the energy into it to melt it, and then you've got to pump it all out again to solidify it. And so while you can add lasers to make your melting process faster by adding more energy, uh, you can't really, there's no such thing as a cold laser. There's nothing you can point at a melt pool to make it cool down quicker. So there's this inherent physics limitation in the ability to, to build that material up. And uh, it turns out that those problems aren't, aren't recoverable. Uh, your limitation can't be moved. So hopefully I can wrap this up successfully. The old processes were very detailed, uh, but slow and expensive. Your cold spray version is fast and relatively cheap and using a very fast jet of metal, which fuses together and minimizes the heat issues, which is what slows down the old technologies. Hopefully that's a good enough summary of the technology and we can move on to the business questions because this was now your second startup and you're a lot more experienced. You know about contracts, you know about capital. 
What was different about the way that you approached setting up SPEE 3D versus what you had done for InMotion Technologies a decade earlier? Oh, absolutely everything was different. So Byron and I knew each other very well at that stage, as you can probably imagine. You know, we trusted each other. We've been working with each other for a long period of time and we'd shared all those experiences in the first company. So you don't particularly sit down and make lists of things that you want to do better. Um, you just get about the process of doing them better. And I was very fortunate that Byron had shared the experience. So we just didn't try and do things the wrong way the second time around. We, we knew what the right way was. We'd worked in industry for a while and, uh, and we had all experiences from the first company. But if you want a short list of some of the things that I think are very useful for a technology company, I would say getting a bit of your growth model right at the start. So thinking about not just how cool the technology is and how people are going to love it, but who do you sell it to? How do you position it in the market? Uh, what are your competitors? You know, how are you going to have it supplied? Those kinds of questions. And in terms of managing the company, thinking about you know, where are you going to put your people? Don't just think about next week and working out of your home office, but ultimately where are the products going to be made? Where are they going to be sold? How are you going to get from one place to the other? So there's no real shortcut to all of this, but I have found there's a tool called the Lean Canvas. It's a one-page tool. You get very good at it very quickly, and you can churn business ideas and technology ideas and go to market strategies with that process. In if, if you've practiced it a few times, you can do it in about 15 or 20 minutes. So I use that myself, and I'd recommend that to others as well who are speculating about how they should structure their, um, their technology business. Yeah, fantastic, Stephen. I think that's from a company called Strategizer, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. You mentioned there, I'll, I'll use the jargon, the go-to-market strategy. So your first point of entry uh, into selling your product and who's going to be a high-value early adopted customer. I think you guys have really nailed this for your product. You're talking about you know remote error mining, but defense as well and those, those applications. I think you mentioned a, a tank drive shaft a moment ago. Why did you select that target market? Uh, as the as the starting point for speed 3D? Uh, well, I mean, the short answer is we we didn't initially. So we knew that people needed technology. We knew roughly what the competing build times and prices would need to be so the market could accept them. But what we didn't know is specifically who our customers would be and in what order. So there's always speculation around that. If you think of a company growth as, you know, four or five stages of growth, the first one being you have an idea and the last one being you have an ongoing business that you're um, improving the efficiency of. You know, somewhere in the middle there, you've worked out who your customers are very specifically and, and specifically which product they love and, uh, and what they'll pay for it and so on. So you have to discover that relatively early. So I think the, the concept of a minimum viable product actually comes from the Lean Canvas. It's this idea of what's the minimum thing we could do that delivers our uniqueness that people will buy and get value from. And I think uh, it, it's good advice to most tech companies, if not all, that they should be considering a minimum viable product as their first product because it minimizes your overhead and development risk and it gets you into the market and it gets you learning about the things that you don't currently know. And these are actually the real risks, are the things that you don't know you don't know. A minimum viable product is a, is a nice low-risk way to start on that process of discovery. So clearly you guys have successfully made it through that MVP stage now, and the company is continuing to grow. I'm sure it will for some time yet. 
could you give our audience a sense of where Speed3D is now and perhaps even where they can go to follow your journey from here? Sure. So we do a lot of work on our website and on YouTube video channel. Um, our YouTube video channel is pretty popular. We are in that phase now where we do know who our customers are and we do know what they need and our product does work and they are deriving value from it. And we're busy setting up to scale into that market, um, not, not just here, but around the world. It's a very exciting phase to be in, but it's, you know, there's a lot of time pressures on everyone, which is unfortunately just a natural part of this phase. So we are starting to look at getting into some of the applications of our product as well. So we're getting into building rocket engines as part of our business going forward, which we know there's a lot of demand for. But uh, in terms of our product, uh, building our printer and our te printing technology and finding the best ways to have it solve our customers' problems, uh, that's, that's the, um, the focus of the business. And it's, it's actually, I've got to be honest, it's... It's really quite a rewarding business to be in this this 3D printing because we get to talk to everyone. Um, you know, we we touch most businesses somehow. It's not boring. It's not dull. We have a huge variety of people to talk to, and uh, some wonderful people we meet with this business, and uh, being able to solve their problems in ways that they think of as magic. I mean, it's it's just just a wonderful experience, wonderful thing to be a part of. Yeah, amazing, Stephen. Uh, the rocket engines sounds really enticing, but I wanted to ask about one case study in particular, because I know you just returned from some sea trials with the US Navy. Can you tell us about that experience, about printing on the high seas? Sure. So uh, in that case, we took one of our printers over to the US. We were invited to a, an event called Reptex Repair Technology Demonstrations. So the US Navy has a special ship, which is used for testing new tech. And uh, we were invited to put one of our printers on the ship and try and make some parts and see if it worked. So for some time, there'd been speculation about whether our technology would work in, in a, what's called the sea state, you know, when things are rocking and rolling around. But, you know, many other forms of metal 3D printing use a powder bed. It's got to be kept very, very precisely leveled. And, uh, you know, the rocking and rolling isn't good for that. Um, it disrupts the process. So we don't, we don't have a powder bed. Our process is relatively simple mechanically. So we'd always thought that would work and the US Navy invited us to go and put our money where our mouth was. And so we put the printer on a ship and uh, we printed some parts at a sea state. And indeed, we printed a few parts one after the other to prove they were all precisely the same shape. And there's a paper coming out on that. But yeah, they're, they're all looking like they're exactly the same shape. So yeah, we're on their, on their ship eating their food, <laughs> rocking and rolling around. Uh, looking at all the stuff on the ship that we could print, it was a fantastic experience. It's it's exactly, I mean, I, I think this this uh, this business is giving me exactly the kind of experience as an engineer that I'd always hoped for. Well, an engineer in his element. That seems like a perfect place to put an end to this podcast. Stephen Camilleri, thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for the chance, Leah. It's been fantastic. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalog for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now. So until next time, keep inventing.